the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Good morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt in Studio North. There's a lot to cover today, a lot to talk about. I'm going to begin, though, by telling you about my friend Terry Eastland, who died yesterday. And I want to read Roger Clegg's uh, short obituary in the National Review, which posted yesterday at 1133. Roger writes, I met Terry Eastland after we had both joined the Justice Department during the Reagan administration in the early 1980s. So we were friends for approximately four decades. He and I were fellow Texans and appreciated not only Ronald Reagan, but Southern cuisine together. To be sure, Terry's expertise on barbecue in particular was deeper than mine, no doubt helped by the fact that his wife, Jill, was from North Carolina. Terry's southern roots were manifest in other ways. He was devoted to the Atlanta Braves and sold encyclopedias and or Bibles door to door. I forget which, and maybe it was both. He went to Vanderbilt and Oxford, studied the classics, eventually became a journalist. Readers of National Review knew Terry as a distinguished and stalwart conservative intellectual. He's the author of numerous books and innumerable articles and high on the masthead of the American Spectator and Weekly Standard, among other publications. He was not a lawyer, but wrote beautifully and wisely about a range of legal issues, including separation of powers, religious freedom, and equal protection. We work together, writes Roger Clegg, most recently at the Center for Equal Opportunity, where Terry continued his lifelong fight for colorblind equal opportunity. Terry was one of the most pleasant and thoughtful people I ever met, a learned and genuine Christian in every sense of the word. No surprise then that he was devoted to his family, helping to care for his mother and mother-in-law and mentally challenged sister, as well as being a devoted husband, father, and grandfather. Jill sent me a text this morning. Terry passed away gently this morning. He is with his Savior. That's a beautiful and short uh Farewell to Terry Eastland. Everyone who is in the conservative legal movement, I mean, really, everyone who's in the conservative legal movement who's 40 and older has worked with Terry, and I don't think anyone can say this. I don't think Terry had any enemies. I really don't. I met Terry at a Bethel Bible study in 1983 when I was clerking on the D.C. Circuit and the fetching Mrs. Hewitt persuaded me to go over to National Presbyterian Church You know, I'm a Catholic, but this is my first dipping the toe into the Presbyterian world. And there are about 14 people from Jack and Edna who were in their 70s, right down to young married couples like the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt and myself and the Eastlands and a number of other people led by Ann Dennison. And we met together once a week for two years to go through the Bible, especially useful to people like me who have no idea what's the organization thereof. But Terry was there, and first time you go around the room, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm clerking on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Terry lit up and said, that's, that's interesting. 
said, I'm over at the Department of Justice. We should have lunch. And we did. And Terry and I and Jill and the fetching Mrs. Hewitt became fast, fast friends over two years in Bible study. And then Terry recruited me to DOJ off the court. He went in and said, do you want to work over here? Bill Smith, because I was going to Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, a big law firm. I'd accepted their offer. I was doing a clerkship and was going to go to GDC downtown D.C. He said, you want to come out and work over here? You know, Bill Smith, he's a he's a Gibson, Dunn uh, & Crutcher partner. He, he'd probably like you. And so he took my resume into Tex Lazar, who was the new chief of staff, after Judge Ken Starr had left. And I interviewed with Tex, and I interviewed with General Smith, and I went over to work there. And Terry and I worked together. For the time I was at Justice and after I went over to the White House, he stayed with Ed Meese when Ed Meese arrived and became the head of public affairs for Ed Meese. And the four horsemen would run at that in those years somewhat fast. That's Brad Reynolds, Chuck Cooper, Terry Eastland, and Hugh Hewitt would run down the mall every day uh, back in the 80s and back up solving the problems of the world. The conservative legal movement is broad and it's old. It's older than the Federalist Society, actually. It begins in 1981 at the Reagan Department of Justice and with Ed Meese at the White House. And it flowered, and in the middle of it was a non-lawyer, Terry Eastland. Now, I'm not saying he's central to everything, he just knew everyone. He wrote carefully, constructively, amusingly, and he was never angry. He was indeed the nicest man in Washington, D.C. And part of that is Texas, and part of that is his Christianity, and part of it is, is his humility. And he really brought home this to me, the most important non-life lesson, but intellectual lesson I learned from Terry. The Constitution was written to be understood by ordinary people. It was written by landed people for people who were not landed and not often literate so that they could adopt it in state conventions and that you ought to be able to read it and understand it and reason it. Terry wrote great books about the Supreme Court. He wrote great books about the law. He wrote great books about affirmative action, especially which offended him deeply because he came from very, very little. And, you know, he ended up going to Vanderbilt and Oxford and becoming an intellectual. He's a newspaper editor at the Virginia Pilot, Norfolk Pilot, I believe, and before that at the Observer. And he was recruited originally by Bill Smith, General Smith, to be a speechwriter. And then he took over all of comms for General Meese. And after that, among his many jobs, he was the publisher of the American Spectator, which is like being the publisher of the craziest magazine that's most productive in the world. He was the publisher of the Weekly Standard um, I don't think he was there during the rise of Trump. He retired a few years ago and moved up to Maine. So I was blessed to be able to see him last summer for a great visit. And then early this summer when health problems had begun to catch up with him. And then last week when he wasn't really communicative, uh, but he was there. And then he passed away yesterday. And everyone should have the life that Terry led in terms of family and friends. Because he's truly blessed by family and friends and with a deep relationship with his Lord, I always remember the the great evangelist uh, D.L. Moody. Someday you will hear that I am dead. That is a lie. I am more alive than I have ever been before. Well, I believe in heaven, but even if you don't, if there is a heaven, Terry just got the VIP enter entrance. He taught Sunday school at Fourth Presbyterian Church. Most people in D.C. who are listening to this and it's on in the Beltway will remember Terry from that. And he was a member of the Salem editorial board for many, many years. He just did everything, and he did everything with a smile and a slightly bemused approach to the world, which benefits everyone. Never took himself seriously. Took serious things very seriously. When I come back, I'm going to read to you the most important op-ed that I uh, read to you. Terry Eastland, rest in peace. Say your prayers for Jill. She's fine. 
Bet she miss you. It's going to see her today. And they live in the way north, the way, way north. They, they left the Beltway and came way north before uh, anybody else I know did. And they live up there. And, and so the fetching Mrs. Hill will be up to see Jill today. And she's doing great. For those of you who know her, she's just fine. She's a wonderful Christian woman herself and has patiently cared for Terry in his last weeks, as anyone would hope a spouse of that long. We got married in the same summer, and we have just been knowing each other for a long time. When I come back, though, there's a column in the Washington Post this morning, which I have to read you, because David Ignatius is the voice of the Beltway. You know, I, I, people jokingly refer to me as the uh, unofficial member of the Senate caucus, and that that's flattering, but it's not true. Uh, what is true about David Ignatius is I don't know that there is a more influential columnist among the Democratic national security world, uh, because David's a very serious guy, very smart guy, and he's been in Washington for as long as he's been alive, and he knows everybody. I last saw him uh, downtown at a, at a restaurant uh deep in conversation with Ambassador Burns from China, because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you want to convey a message to the elites of Washington, D.C., you talk to David at length. And he's not a stenographer. What he is is an interpreter of what's going on. And obviously, Democrats are begging David Ignatius to put the word out in a way that the former that the President Biden cannot miss, that he's got to step aside. So I'm going to read that to you uninterrupted after the break. Let me remind everyone out there, um, we, we have sponsors. We have great sponsors. And one of those sponsors is the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'll be going down for their banquet to MC it. And Danny Perez, bring your, bring your vest. Bring your asbestos suit. Uh, RichStatesPoorStates.org is the publication of the American Legislative Exchange Council that I love the most. I look around the world and I see good news and bad news. I look around states and I see New Mexico doing this goofy, unconstitutional thing. By the way, the New Mexico attorney general said to the governor, I'm not doing that. The police department said, I'm not doing that. That's unco- It's authoritarianism. We have authoritarianism unleashed by a Democratic governor in New Mexico. Do this, do that. It's sort of a reversal to COVID. Well, New Mexico is not a rich state. It's a poor state. And if you read why, if you get richstatespoorstates.org, just go there and order it. You'll find out why your state is rich or poor or in between. You don't want to be in between and you don't want to be poor. You want to be Utah or Florida. And there are ways to get that done. And they are all detailed at richstatespoorstates.org. When we come back, David Ignatius in the Washington Post and the column that I read last night coming back from a Chris Christie event in New Hampshire, which I'll tell you about after the second break today. I drove down to New Hampshire with a fetching Mrs. Hewitt yesterday to see Governor Christie in the wild, as I say, when I go to see candidates like Nikki Haley last month. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America, on this Wednesday morning. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Yesterday, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I drove down to Mountain Base Brewery in Goffstown, New Hampshire, because former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was having a get-together with uh, builders in New Hampshire, and bunch of the media was there. I sat in the back, said hello to the governor, but I just sit in the back, as does Fetchy Mrs. Hewitt. And I just want to watch how they're doing. I've done that with Nikki Haley. Any of the candidates come up here, I will go down there if I'm invited, whether it's Tim Scott or President Trump. I like to see candidates in the wild. And New Hampshire makes you work, right? So Chris Christie was talking about our role in the world. What is Putin trying to do by endorsing Trump? Uh, he talked about 
because Mary Pat, uh, his wife and his brother were two blocks from the World Trade Center. He had been in, sworn in as the U.S. attorney for New Jersey the day before 9-11. He recounted that. Um, he also talked about the need to get serious about the world. If we do not lead, we will be pushed around. We will be a vassal state. And then I thought the most interesting thing, and this is probably an appeal that many people make to New Hampshire voters. New Hampshire voters are a very interesting group of people. I sat next to a guy who had been in the Air Force. His dad had been a builder. He's in the finance business now. And Jan was behind me. And we were talking with them, and they have made up their minds. And they have critiques of the country and of the campaign. You learn a lot. Chris Christie did 15 minutes of remark, talked to the bartender, and then said, I'm not going to take questions. I'm going to work. I'm going to come and talk to each of you. Because he had three events. We went to the afternoon event. He did a C-SPAN town hall. I don't know where, at, at noon. He did the Beards with Builders at Mountain Base Brewery. And then he was off to do uh, a late-night town hall at 8.30. And I wasn't going to go to that. So I went to the small event, which is a few dozen people. But it was fascinating to watch him work the room. And he is a vo- he's a pro, right? He is absolutely a pro. But what I really took away is that New Hampshire voters have an extraordinary privilege and a responsibility. And they all seem to take it pretty seriously. They're not goofballs. They are there because their vote, proportionate to anyone else's, matters a great deal. It thins the field at a minimum, and it might select the nominee at the maximum. I mean, if they if they were to uh, overwhelmingly uh, vote for Donald Trump in January of next year, and by the way, the announcement of the exact day is today, uh, the chairman of the Republican Party up there, Chris was there and we were chatting. He's like me. He's in Switzerland, but he greets everyone. He comes to every event that he can. And it's a full time job that pays him nothing. I think it's sort of like Republican chairman of every state and Ron McDaniel full time job. and They don't get paid. But the the chair of the uh, New Hampshire Republican Party was telling me they're they're literally a dozen debates a week. And he tries to go everywhere. Welcome everyone because it helps build the party, helps build the party, helps build the party. And. By that, uh, Tom Fuentes was my old friend in Orange County. He was the chairman of the Orange County Republican Party for 20-plus years. He loved party work, party regulars. And he always would say, we got to do something for the regulars. You know, there are these high-dollar donor events in their swank places. Tom was like, we got to do something for the voters. we got to do something for the uh, poll workers. we got to do something for the people who walk precincts. Well, in New Hampshire, everybody is matters. Literally, every vote matters. So when you see the governor walking around doing it, he's very good at this. Nikki Haley is very good at this. I haven't seen Governor DeSantis or Senator Scott yet. I assume they're pretty good at this. Donald Trump has the power of celebrity uh, on a level that nobody else does. So he overwhelms an audience so much as charms it. But I I don't know which way New Hampshire is going to go because of this sort of event. It's so granular. It's so individually driven that if a candidate can make an eye contact with, hear, and respond effectively to a voter, they win that voter. Chris Christie's very good at that. And he's in second place behind Donald Trump in New Hampshire. I think Nikki Haley's in third. I don't think Ron DeSantis is really going to contest the state. I, I think if I, if I knew, if I could figure out, if I could be the Borg and absorb all the candidates together, they would be thinking, Governor DeSantis wins in Iowa, either Haley or or Christie wins in New Hampshire, either Haley or Scott wins in South Carolina, and then DeSantis wins in Florida, and Donald Trump is beaten. But to beat the dragon, you can't, like, shoot one arrow at him every four miles or so. You've got to 
coordinate your attack. And they're not doing that. And Donald Trump's popularity is growing, and the prosecutions of him have invested his supporters with a energy that I've not seen before because they realize that the justice system is off the rails. Now, we are going to have an impeachment inquiry. Kevin McCarthy yesterday announced it. Let's play it. Cut number one. Welcome back, everyone. You know, in the months that we were gone, in the weeks, House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. Taken together, these allegations paint a picture of a culture of corruption. Now, here's what we know so far. Through our investigations, we have found that President Biden did lie to the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his sons and his sons' business partners. We know that bank records show that nearly $20 million in payments were directed to the Biden family members and associates through various shale companies. The Treasury Department alone has more than 150 transactions involving the Biden family and other business associates that were flagged as suspicious activity by U.S. banks. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. Biden used his official office to coordinate with Hunter Biden's business partners about Hunter's role in Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company. Finally, despite these serious allegations, it appears that the president's family has been offered special treatment by Biden's own administration, treatment that not otherwise would have received if they were not related to the president. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers. I believe the president would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. This effort will be led by Chairman James Comer at the Committee on Oversight in coordination with Chairman Jim Jordan for Judiciary Committee and Chairman Jason Smith on Ways and Means. Now, I do not make this decision lightly. And regardless of your party or who you voted for, these facts should concern all Americans. The American people deserve to know that the public offices are not for sale and that the federal government is not being used to cover up the actions of a politically associated family. Now, I would encourage the president and his team to fully cooperate with this investigation in the interests of transparency. We are committed to getting the answers for the American public. 
Nothing more, nothing less. We will go wherever the evidence takes us. Thank you. That is a, an announcement with significant implications for President uh, Biden. Some Democrats criticized Speaker McCarthy for not having a vote to open the impeachment inquiry. He is simply following what Nancy Pelosi did. There was no vote to open the impeachment inquiry on Donald Trump. And the, the, the lack of a vote there is a precedent. And just as Harry Reid broke the filibuster for judges and Mitch McConnell warned him not to do it, that he would use it, uh, McConnell did use it, rightly so, and wasn't going to be limited by uh, Harry Reid's attempt to keep the Supreme Court uh, free of the filibuster breaking because, of course, he would have broken that rule if he needed to, too. Once you break a rule, the rule's broken. And so the rule about a vote on impeachment inquiry was broken by Nancy Pelosi, and Kevin McCarthy's not going to be bound by it. So there will be an impeachment inquiry, and we will get to the bottom of it. And if you hear anyone say there's no evidence of wrongdoing, they're lying to you. I don't know if the evidence will persuade me. There is most definitely evidence of wrongdoing in the president's repeated statements that he never spoke to his son about his son's business dealing. Again, I remind you of the David Ignatius column. Paragraph number 10 is the whole purpose of writing this column. Biden has never been good at saying no. He should have resisted the choice of Kamala Harris, who was a colleague of his beloved son, Bo, when they were both at state attorneys general. Biden should have blocked then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which has done considerable damage to the island's security. Biden should have stopped his son, Hunter, from joining the board of the Ukrainian gas company and representing companies in China. And he certainly should have resisted Hunter's attempts to impress clients by getting dad on the phone. All right, that's an admission against the Democratic Party's interest by the voice of the Beltway. And I don't know that David is a registered Democrat, but he's a center-left guy, and he's very establishmentarian and very, very well-respected and a superb writer with great sources. But he is speaking on behalf of every Democrat in town who's not getting paid by Joe Biden. It is that simple. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. That, that they read that and review it, and the president does the right thing, because it's actually dangerous. That's what Chris Christie was saying last night at the Mountain Base Brewery. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was not only Secretary of State, he was Director of the CIA, a congressman from Kansas, a veteran of the Army, first in his classes at West Point and number one in his law school at Harvard Law, now he's a movie star. I, I found in preparing to talk to him about the G20 that he and Ambassador David Friedman have gone out. They're true friends of Israel, and they have made a movie, Route 60, The Biblical Highway. Uh, before we go to policy, Mr. Secretary, congratulations. I have never heard of Route 60 until I saw this. Tell me about it. Well, Hugh, thanks. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Uh, it was Ambassador Friedman's idea that we would walk this biblical route uh, uh, from Nazareth in, the, uh, Nazareth in the north to Beersheba in the south through Jerusalem. And we would tell stories from his perspective as an Orthodox Jew and mine as an evangelical Christian. And we would share with the world Judea and Samaria. People have pictures of stones and rockets and smoke and bad things. And we wanted to remind them that this is an important place for evangelical Christians, for Jews, for all members of the Abrahamic faith. And so the movie comes out. It's in theaters across America next week on Monday and Tuesday. I hope folks will go see it, take their Bible study, take their friends. It was a lot of fun to make, and it tells this important story about this incredibly important place. And, you know, 
we did it in spite of the Screen Actors Guild, Hugh. Uh, we didn't strike. I, I'm a member of that union, so I'm on strike, Mr. Secretary. But I'm going to cross the picket line and go. It's Monday and Tuesday of the next week, a week from yesterday and the day before. Yeah, that's right. And you can go find the theater near you. It's on Route 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 60.movie. I I am really looking forward to that. Now, uh, Mr. Secretary, I reached out to you without knowing about that because the G20 left me reeling. Uh, I uh, last night, Chris Christie was. I went down to a Christie event. I go to all the events in New Hampshire for candidates that I can. And he said, quite bluntly, President Biden does not have the physical or mental capacity to be president. I think that showed through, and I think it's extremely dangerous. Uh, Respectful though I am, what do you think of this situation? Uh, You, we can see it. The world can see it. I still travel a fair amount, and I have people all across the world, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, asking, you know, what's going on? Um, we, we clearly have a president who has served his country for five decades now, uh, but who is no longer, forget leading, he, he simply isn't demonstrating the basic fundamental competence to execute the mission of the presidency of the United States of America. That is a tough job. It is a big job. And I think, you know, uh, a president who is literally played off stage with music and who answers a question by saying, I'm going to bed is not someone that ought to be the president of the United States of America. It's too important a task for us and for the world. Now, you have met with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. You've met with Xi. You've met with, I don't know if you met with Putin. Did you meet with Putin? I did, a couple of times. Okay, so what do these killers think of someone as infirm as the president? They think in a, in a, in a system like ours, they, it confuses them because they, they struggle to understand how someone who hasn't been able to demonstrate that he can uh, you know, work the hours required, uh, run a process to get to good decisions and outcomes, and then lead and demonstrate that result. They, they, they don't know what to make of it. They're confused, and they then watch the policies, Hugh. So separate this from the person. They watch this administration give billions of dollars to the Iranians, allow 13 Americans to be killed in Afghanistan, uh, they allow the Russians to close a pipeline. We forget this. The very part of the Biden administration, first part of the Biden administration, they closed a pipeline in America, and we did nothing. Xi Jinping is staring at this and thinking, well, this may well be the moment when I can extend my empire in the way that I've wanted to do for so long. Deterrence is really a risk, Hugh. And it's not just the bad, bad guys. I saw a picture of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia shaking hands with President Biden. Crown prince is 40 years old. Joe Biden is 80 years old. Uh, Crown Prince is going to be the king for three decades, four decades if his health holds out. What do you think he thinks of Joe Biden's appeal to do anything? Goodness, you know, the only good thing that came out of the G20 was this agreement between India, the Emirates, the Saudis and the United States. I I applaud all of them for that, um, uh, to connect those countries economically uh, through energy and commerce. That's good stuff. But I am I'm confident that each of those leaders, to your point, our adversaries see weakness, and our friends, our partners, our allies, those who, with whom we work, they don't know if they've got a trusted, reliable partner on the other side. And so when they see uh, President Biden clearly struggling in the way that he is, uh, they ask themselves, how can I hedge my risk in the event um, that I don't have that reliable counterparty in the way that they had for four years when President Trump and I were in office? Now, Mr. Secretary, when I was driving up, return driving, and my wife was driving the car, so I was able to read when it came up in real time, David Ignatius' new column. 
Uh, and I want to quote it to you first, but I think David Ignatius is rightly esteemed by left and right. And he is certainly well connected with everyone at both of the places you led, both the agency and the State Department. Is that a fair statement of fact? Uh, that is an understatement to say well connected. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he is like the Beltway, walking around personified. Here is what he wrote today. Biden has never been good at saying no. He should have resisted the choice of Vice President Harris who was a colleague of his beloved son, Beau, when they were both state's attorney general. Biden should have blocked then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which has done considerable damage to the island's security. Biden should have stopped his son, Hunter, from joining the board of a Ukrainian gas company and representing companies in China. And Biden certainly should have resisted Hunter's attempt to impress clients by getting dad on the phone. That's an earthquake, Mr. Secretary. What did you think when you read that? I agree. Although I will say, um, I've had my moments with uh, David Ignatius where he and I have gone at it pretty good. Um, but he often presents a, a, a credible narrative of what he's hearing in those very places you described, not just in the institutions themselves, but in a greater Washington, D.C., left of center and progressive politics. So I think that's not just David's view. I think that is an emerging consensus view. You know, as for the substance of those, um, I think he's largely right about each of them. Uh, those were Those were bad decisions. But that list is pretty long, Hugh. Uh, the list of decisions that President Biden has made have absolutely weakened our nation abroad and made our friends really worried about American resolve. So we really have a keel in the water. Uh, the old the, the model of President Reagan of peace through strength, are, are they serious about doing this? Instead, they've put climate change, they've put diversity, equity, inclusion at the top of their national security priorities, and that's greatly in line with David Ignatius. That is, he just can't say no. When the progressive left comes calling, President Biden has demonstrated he is willing to bend a knee to them every single time. Now, Mr. Secretary, you know what impeachments do to the executive branch, but you're also a member of the House. And I like to remind people you're on the Benghazi committee and you know how the House operates. Do you think an impeachment inquiry is ill-advised or well-advised at this point, or do you have to be in the House to make that judgment? You know, it's probably the case that the the more data you have. So if I was a member, I'd have even a better judgment. But I actually think given what I have seen publicly, it's a pretty reasonable next step. Uh, you know, Mr. Ignatius talked about we, we, we now know some things, right? The New York Times or the Axios can say whatever they want about no evidence. But we have indisputed evidence that President Biden got the Ukrainian prosecutor fired. He claimed it himself. We have indisputed, undisputed evidence that Hunter was on a board of a company for which he was wholly unqualified. And then the two of them were on phone calls selling the Biden brand. Uh, I think there's lots of questions to ask. And so I actually think it's a very reasonable proposition to, in a very fact-based, measured way, continue to inquire and see the scope and extent of President Biden's connectivity while in office. Not, not when he was just a dad, but while he was the vice president of the United States. Did he, in fact, use his office, our office, the American vice presidency, in a way that benefited him and his family that was inappropriate. I think it's very reasonable. All right, Mr. Secretary, I, I want to turn to the debates. Uh, you have watched politics for decades unfold on TV. I'm sure you watched the first debate with our friends, Brett Baer and, and Martha McCollum, asking questions. Second debate's coming up next week. From a national security standpoint, what would you like uh, Dana Prino, Stuart Varney, and other, I can't remember the third host, to ask of our candidates? I think there's three things. Uh, the, the, the first is sort of granularly, tell me what it is that you're prepared to do to protect America at home from the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. Think counterintelligence, 
think uh, our universities and schools that the Chinese Communist Party has come to infiltrate. But those are hard problem sets, and I'd love to see a candidate who has thought long and hard about how to protect not just the Taiwan Straits and not just the South China Sea, but the United States proper from the Chinese Communist Party's United Front, their propaganda campaign here in the United States. And what does that mean commercially for the United States? How do we deal with American businesses who are caught in that twist? Second, um, when the Republican model has always, uh, the Republican Party's always had an element, the Buchanan wing, uh, the, the Ron and Rand Paul wing of our party. I hope they'll ask candidates, uh, are you prepared to continue to lead with a model that looks like one that has been successful for our country in the post-World War II system? Uh, if not, talk about it. Explain why not. Explain why you think it's better to be home and be an isolationist. Defend that vigorously. But ask them to get one level between just these top-line notional discussions. And ask them, tell me what that means. How does that translate to resources spent in Europe? How does that translate to recruiting for arm, armed forces? How does that translate into building America's industrial base? Are you prepared to go on national TV from the Oval Office and defend American power as good for the American people? If, if, they, if they get to those two things one level below the discussion that's been had today, I think the American people will be able to make better decisions about the things that really matter to them and their family. Now, we have about a minute and a half left, which is what a candidate gets. If a host asks them, what is your policy on assistance to Ukraine? What do you recommend in the best interest of the United States be their answer? Full-throated, immediate capabilities that the Ukrainians can bring to bear uh, in, the, in real time with de minimis training, uh, not just hardware, which is what often gets talked about, but we need to provide them intelligence, training, strategic advice, so that they can successfully, successfully win. You know, Reagan talks about we win, they lose. We need to make sure that Vladimir Putin can never t- say to the world he won this conflict. This aggression is dangerous not just for Ukraine, but for Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, all of Europe, and therefore for things that matter to people in Arizona and Tennessee and Wyoming. But then the follow-up will be, is that an open-ended commitment for years? Is it Vietnam? We must win. We must continue to provide those tools. We don't have to deal with the question of open-endedness if we actually deliver on things that can close the end. What we've done to date is we've strung this along. This, this could well have been over had we deterred in advance or provided the systems and processes they needed in a way that uh, the Biden administration refused to do because it was just feared that they'd provoke Vladimir Putin. That was a mistake. And President Reagan knew that. When you go in piecemeal, you often end up precisely where we are today. Mr. Secretary Mike Pompeo, thank you for joining me. I'll be in theater on Monday or Tuesday to see Route 60. Let's let's tell people that MyPhDWeightLoss.com is a sponsor of this show. And pursuant to their formula and their guidance, you lost 50 pounds a year ago. A uh, little over. Well, yeah, actually, it was about a year ago I was I was kind of planning out to to the fifty pound loss, I okay, was in. So the, I was about two thirds of the way through a twelve week, fifty pound weight loss. And you've you've kept it off. Yeah, absolutely. And does Skinny Dwayne go farther in an EV? No, don't answer that. We'll bring that up on the Universe Pod today because you did ask John Campbell if Skinny Dwayne goes farther in an EV than Old Dwayne. I did uh, ask him about yes weight loads. And generally speaking, what else changes in your life when you dump off fifty pounds? 
Uh, you can you can go on walks a lot easier. You can move around a lot easier. You can get on an airplane and actually fit in your seat and not uh, kind of overreach your circumstances. Uh, there's there's lots of there's lots of benefits to losing fifty pounds. Eight six four six four four nineteen hundred. That's eight six four six four four nineteen hundred. Or eight six four six four four nineteen hundred. Yes, I always I listen the to three, podcasts yes. now, and I hear podcasters blow through the number. If you want to become a tech subscriber, like we have tech subscribers at the universe, and they blow through the number, and it makes me crazy. It's just bad. It's bad, bad business. Bad it's business. Bad, it's bad formatics, and that's saying bad, something bad for you. Bad formatics. Yeah, and I, I hate bad formatics. Oh, Thank you, generally. Exactly. I, I hate bad formatics. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Chairman Mike Gallagher is the man who leads the Select Committee on Engagement with the Chinese Communist Party. He's also Representative Gallagher from Wisconsin, friend of the show, and he cannot join us by video today, so I don't have to put up with with Green Bay Packer paraphernalia. I think he will join me, though, in saying that was a sad moment Monday night, wasn't it? It was a sad moment, um, at least on two levels. One, you know, I I love Aaron uh, and always will, and... uh, you know, it was exciting to see what was going to happen uh, with the Jets. I'm obviously not a Jets fan, but you never wish an injury like that on anyone, particularly when he was looking to cap off what would spend by any stretch a Hall of Fame, first out Hall of Fame career. And then, perhaps more importantly, we needed him to play 65% of his snaps in order to get the Jets' first-round pick next year, which we don't get. So You do not get. You do not get that. So, Chairman, what you do get is an opportunity to tell people about the financial war game that the Select Committee on Engagement with the Chinese Communist Party held. And I saw the clip on Twitter, now known as X, and I retweeted it, reposted it so that people would see it about the folks who did not want to be identified as meeting with you, which reminded me of my Harvard reunion when all the professors said, no one's taping, right? We don't want this tape. Nobody is. Nobody wants their Chinese overlords to know what they're saying or doing with you. It's remarkable. I'll take that in reverse order because um, you think about it. These are, are big, you know, Wall Street leaders. Uh, they have no hesitation about flying to China, uh, to Beijing, uh, to Hong Kong, to meet with high-level Chinese Communist Party officials, to be photographed doing so. There's absolutely no hesitation to do that. And yet when it comes to meeting with elected representatives, bipartisan group of elected representatives, by the way, Democrats and Republicans, they are afraid of angering their limited partners, uh, their investors in China, uh, which I think just perfectly illustrates how much economic leverage and coercion the Chinese Communist Party has over us, particularly when it comes to the financial elite uh, in this world. And for decades, we've been chasing returns in China at the expense of our national security. And what we discovered in our investigation, we've actually been funding our own destruction because American capital flows to Chinese military companies. On your first Well, you you scored a direct hit on BlackRock. Make sure you cover that, too. Yes. Uh, Quickly on the war game, um, we took the committee, about 10 of our members, uh, equal parts Democrats and Republicans, to New York to conduct a, a war game that focused less on missiles and torpedoes and more on supply chains and the SWIFT banking system and sanctions uh, to tease out the economic and financial implications of a confrontation with China over Taiwan. So we included in this war game high-level Wall Street um, leaders, uh, bankers, asset managers, um, 
you know, uh, former general officers as well. Uh, and it was a remarkable exercise because it really hammered home the point. We analyzed a set of options in a 2028 scenario, five years in the future. And then we would go back in time to the present day to, to tease out what decisions could we make today to increase the set of options we have in 2028. Because the bottom line is we don't have many good options. Uh, if we continue on our complacent path, if we continue, you know, fiddling around the edges when it comes to selective decoupling or reducing our dependency on China, we're going to find ourselves in a position in 2028 where they have so much economic leverage from their dominance of pharmaceutical supply chain, from their dominance of foundational uh, semiconductors, as well as some of the high-end semiconductors, that we're, it, we're really going to struggle to deter them from invading we're really going to struggle to use the power of our capital markets and the power of the U.S. dollar. And I'll say one final thing on that. One, one thing that, that all of the financial leaders we met with hammered home is just how important it is to preserve dollar dominance and how we take that for granted and how the best way to do that is to actually tackle our debt, which is the, the mounting debt is the biggest threat to the status of the dollar of the U.S. Reserve currency. So we have to be fiscally responsible as well as make the, the investments we need in our military in order to defuse this massive crisis. So Chairman Gallagher, um, how can you tell us how many hours it takes and how many moves were made and who ran the game and the reaction of the Wall Street people? Uh, we only had two hours, which, <laughs> which is limited. But, you know, so a, a, a realistic war game along the lines of what they do at the Naval War College, would unfold over the course of days, if not weeks, if you're talking about the, the sort of gold standard called the Global 14, Global 15 war game. You know, recognizing we're dealing with people that have busy schedules, which includes members of Congress, right? And it's very difficult to get members of Congress to sit still in any place together for 15 minutes, let alone two hours. Um, we had to truncate it, uh, but we were able to really go deep and do about five moves uh, that analyzed Okay, what options do we have when it comes to trade instruments and tariffs that we could use? Uh, how, what options do we have when it comes to pharmaceuticals? What options do we have when it comes to critical minerals? Uh, what, what options do we have when it comes to sanctions and cutting off access to our capital markets and, and cutting off their ability to transact and things like the SWIFT system? So we did about five moves. Um, we partnered with uh, a think tank called Silverado, uh, which did a phenomenal job. Uh, leading the effort. And um, I think it was very useful for our members. And, and if nothing else, it, it hammered home the importance of, of taking action now before it's too late. It's the most obvious thing, too, that you see in your, your personal life, but it's also true in geopolitics. If you have a risk of heart disease, if you, you don't wait until the actual heart attack comes, you start working out today in order to bend the curve. That's what we need to do right now. Otherwise, we just, we're not going to have many options five years from now. And the Chinese Communist Party is just going to get more and more aggressive. Did Silverado, with whom I am not acquainted, did they predict market fluctuations in the course of the crisis? Because I do think people do not understand the whole world impact of a China-U.S. confrontation. Well, it's really interesting. In the very first move we contemplated, we had about four options, one of which was to cut them off uh, the SWIFT banking system um, and another one which was a very, very aggressive option. And you can almost see in terms of our outside experts, people that work on Wall Street, 
their their eyes go wide when we started contemplating those more aggressive options because in their in their uh, opinion um, imposing restrictions on U.S. investment uh, and capital flows, um, cutting off Chinese exports to the United States, or you know denying China the access to the SWIFT uh, SWIFT uh, uh, system, amounted to nuclear financial weapons that would blow up the global economy. And so initially, all we got in the first 15 minutes was, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And at one point, I said, Paul, we're, you're, we're here in 2028. We're, we're the cabinet. We're, we're the president. We're asking for options. We, we need options here. We can't just say, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. It'll blow up the, the global economy. And then we had a fascinating debate about, okay, recognizing the destructive impact of blowing up the global economy. Are, is it all, we also have to recognize that there may be a few things worse than that, i.e. blowing up a lot of things in physical space. Put differently, if we don't find a way to deter this crisis using very aggressive economic and financial weapons, actual weapons may be used to kill thousands and thousands of Americans. So it was an intellectually very, very difficult scenario to contemplate, and which is why it was a useful exercise. And I think it forced us to think through things in a different way that we hadn't thought through before. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very aware that Congressman Gallagher, Chairman Gallagher, has broken the rule repeatedly. The Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, a.k.a. the SWIFT system. SWIFT is an acronym that the chairman did not explain. It is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, And it is controlled by the West, and it links every bank with every other bank, whether through other banks, whatever. And so we have never unplugged even North Korea from SWIFT, which I can now say, having identified the acronym, you, however, owe $20 to the tip jar, Chairman Gallagher. Oh, sorry about that. You know, it's hard. It's hard, particularly when you're dealing with this, you know. Wall Street types. uh, Well, well, we've never done a SWIFT shutdown, have we, for anybody? Well, I, I think uh, I think with Russia, uh, there was at least a partial cutoff of the SWIFT system. But this leads to another this leads to another key point in the war game. In in the wake of Vladimir Putin's second invasion of Ukraine, you know, a lot of companies uh, spurred on by the government took massive write downs on their exposure uh, in order to get out of Russia, and it was painful, but it was doable uh, because Russia just isn't the same economic power that China is. With China, it would be so much more difficult for the private sector, for the financial community to do that. I mean, it just would be so much more painful. And you would, 
politicians would be getting lobbied by the financial elites, by the Wall Street elites, who would be getting pressure from China in order to slow down any action we take. All the more reason why we need to move aggressively now to cut off the flow of U.S. capital to key sectors uh, in China. All the more reason why we need to take aggressive now to get our supply chains out of China so they can't threaten to cut off the export of penicillin or life-saving drugs. These are things that need to happen before we before we find ourselves confronting the crisis because our options will be limited at that point. Representative Gallagher, in, in terms of Wall Street, everybody acts in their own self-interest. They always do. But there's self-interest immediate and self-interest long-term. Does the Wall Street banking community understand that long-term we cannot allow this situation to continue and indeed fester and be, grow worse? Well, the morning after the war game, we held a field <clears> hearing <throat> uh, where we had the former SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, uh, and some other witnesses uh, to tackle this very topic. And I do think if you look at capital flows to China, they've collapsed because people are starting to understand the systemic risks involved in investing in China. And oh, by the way, the returns are no longer that good. I mean, compared against the S&P 500, they just haven't performed well as an investment. So we're getting there, but we're not moving fast enough. And one of the arguments we heard was, well, capital flows to China are dropping, so you don't need to put restrictions in place. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Now is the time to lock in a robust set of restrictions on capital flows to China so we're not funding our own destruction at the moment when even Wall Street seems to have conceded the point because fewer and fewer asset managers are investing in China. And even the massive, the biggest companies like Apple, who are so exposed to China, are trying to find ways to diversify their supply chain and expand their presence in places like India. Now is the time to act. Excellent hearing in New York this week. Go and follow the Select Committee on Engagement with China, Chinese Communist Party on Twitter. Follow Representative Gallagher at Rep Gallagher. And I think you're up to $140 in fines for uh, the Prison Fellowship Campaign in December, Chairman. But I'll keep you posted on that. Use an acronym. Put $5 in the tip jar on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt for Birch Gold. Go to HughGold.com or text my name Hugh to 989898 to get the free information package on opening up a physical precious metals IRA, SEP IRA, or 401k. To do that, you need an independent third-party administrator. You buy the gold and the third-party administrator puts it into a vault and they keep you posted on it and hopefully you add to it over the years. I want you to know that over the past 100 years, gold kept up with inflation. It is definitely your runaway money. And if you want to diversify, not just stocks and bonds and cash, but dirt and gold, well, the latter two ought to make up at least 10% of your wealth, and some of that should be in gold. I buy my gold from Birch Gold. You ought to as well. Go to HughGold.com. That's HughGold.com. Or text my name, Hugh, to 989898. Thousands of you have made those inquiries. Many of you have opened up those depositories. Physical precious metals, physical gold, the one thing that won't slip away in the night. HughGold.com, text Hugh to 989898. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt in Studio North. We're going to be very gentle with Jim Garrity, my colleague from the Washington Post and the editor at the National Review. We're going to be very sensitive, very, very carefully fragile. Uh, Jim, as a Browns fan, I actually know the kind of misery you're in. If that were to have happened to the Browns and our $55 million quarterback on Sunday, I don't know if I could have broadcast. So I salute you for being here. How are you doing? 
Hugh, I'm doing fantastic. You saw the final score, right? You, I know you, know you won. I saw your exactly. tweet, and I gave you a thumbs up for that tweet. A yeah, win is I, a win. I, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm feeling fantastic, in part because the Jets fa- found out a way to, to win against a good opponent after taking the biggest gut punch imaginable. And and so, like, there are a lot of times in this – I was trying to say yesterday, people are like, oh, same old Jets – no, the same old Jets would have lost that game 47 to 3. Uh, yeah, a yeah, team that can true. manage, you know. Um, before we go any further, Hugh, I also I want to, I, I have a slight non football uh, bone to pick. Uh, I saw a tweet of yours, I guess probably like last week or so, where you were upset with something Politico had written. I don't even remember what it was, but you said like they've turned into the National Review for the left. And can I just ask, like, could you just not compare National Review? to Politico, period. You know, I got so much grief from my many friends at National Review for whom I have written that I had to subsequently Mm -hmm. edit enter a tweet saying, hey, I love NRO. It's the best online and good publication of the right. It wasn't meant that way, but it it could be construed um, as as probably a more more of a criticism of NR than you intended. Because the gist was you're not happy with what Politico is doing, right? Let me see if you agree with it. Politico is very, very good at representing the worldview of the center left to left. Very, very good at it. And they do culture and lots of reporting. And they also have worldwide reach and national review. William F. Buckley standing astride history and shouting stop. They've been doing it longer than anyone at a quality level. So is it really bad to compare the two? Because they are kind of in the same space. Um, If somebody said to me, Jim, your work is great. You're just like Politico. You, you're going to see that forced smile. You're, you're going to see that. that uh, I, I know you think you're complimenting me. I don't necessarily take it that well, way. Well, I apologize to said, all my friends you, from Rich Lowry you, down to great. Jack Butler and everybody in between. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can we go back to the Jets? Um, did you see what Aaron Rodgers sure. told um, the wide receiver Garrett Wilson after the game? Uh, I'm not sure I did. Two words. Sorry, kid. I love that. That's such a pro move. Yeah. All right. Let's go to impeachment. Look, I, look, look. Sure. Actually, let's go to our I colleague at the Washington Post, David Ignatius. I was. Mm-hmm. I went to a Chris Christie event in New Jersey yesterday in New Hampshire. Yesterday, drove down to watch him do a uh, a retail political event. I like to go see candidates in the wild. And as I was driving back up, I said, "Holy camoli!" To the fetching Mrs. Hewitt. And I read the Ignatius column when it posted. I cannot believe that, Jim. What was your reaction? Well, I have not had the chance to meet David Ignatius in the flesh. And I, I try really hard to not, uh, you know, pick any fights with anybody else at the Washington Post, left, right, or center. You know I, I do think this column is going to get a lot of attention uh, because David Ignatius does not fly off the handle. He does not say things with precisely the opposite, that that he is very much um, controlled, well-researched, well-sourced, doesn't say things willy-nilly. Um, that I think, and look, you know, that this this is an indicator. So I think it's safe to say that Ignati- if Ignatius is writing about it, then there are a lot of conversations along those lines happening in Democratic circles. And I think it's safe to say Democrats are much more nervous than they want to admit and look, maybe it was the perform- president's performance in Vietnam. Maybe it was, 
lying dog face pony soldier and Kareem Jean-Pierre getting a giant hook and trying to pull him off the stage and, and all that. Um, they're, they're not, I, they're probably not certain that, uh, Joe Biden is going to beat Joe, Donald Trump a second time. And right now, Donald Trump looks like the man far yeah, David away, is, likely to be the his, his father was secretary of the Navy. David is a patriot and he knows everyone in the national security establishment. I think he's genuinely afraid. He doesn't say that, but his key paragraph and people can find this on Twitter if they want to read it. I put, put it in a block quote on my Twitter account, uh, that, Biden has never been good at saying no. He should have resisted the choice of Harris. Biden should have blocked then House Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Biden should have stopped his son Hunter from joining the board of the Ukrainian gas company and representing companies in China. And Biden certainly should have resisted Hunter's attempts to impress clients by getting dad on the phone. That is to me, that's like five bullets in the sternum because that's coming from Mr. Beltway. And and when yeah. David talked, he's talked to everybody and he's just given the impeachment inquiry all the evidence they need. Yeah, I'm also going to observe, uh, Hugh, do, do, when you look at that list, don't you hear that old Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the other. Taiwan, like, Nancy really? Pelosi. Pelosi endangered Taiwan? Really? Okay, I can't. I kind of thought China was be the big endangerment of Taiwan, but hey, that's yeah. just me. You you call it the way you see it, David. Um, he, no, but yeah. Look, I, I think there was one of my my attitude on Hunter Biden is that like all there was some study that did it that looked at members of Congress, and at least eighty of them, like forty some Republicans, forty some Democrats, had a member of their family either working on their campaign, working in their congressional office, working on their PAC, or in some form or another. They had a job. In a lot of those cases, it looked like make work jobs. You know, you you answer the phones and we're going to give you a very nice salary. Everybody's got an idiot nephew. And most of Washington is fine with that. Most of Washington doesn't think it's that much of a scandal to employ some idiot relative of yours. When you're idiot and you look, I've read a big timeline of the career of Hunter Biden. He's always been a lobbyist. He's always been trading on his dad's name, as is, by the way, uh, Joe Biden's brother, uh, James Biden. So it always was this, eh, you know, it doesn't look good, but we can avert our eyes from it. And it just grew year by year and got bigger and bigger until the point he's on the board of directors of this Ukrainian gas company without any knowledge, without any. And the only reason you put somebody there is because you think you're buying a friendship with the then vice president of the United States and then a person who is the former vice president and potential future president and now the son of the president of the United States. And it, you know, there was never any point where you're right. Biden could have said, no, you know, kiddo, you can't do this anymore. You got to find a different way of making a living. And oh, by the way, we got to get you into rehab. Like, like every, every dad in the country sympathizes. But at no point did Biden say, no, you can't do this. And that's how he ended up in this situation. In which his you know, running around I, the I don't know that he said, could have because Hunter Biden made tens of millions of dollars doing this. And I don't know that he could have actually survived without the tens of millions of dollars. But here's the kicker about the Ignatius column, Jim. And David's a very serious man. You have heard, I'm sure, on every cable station, there is no evidence. There is no evidence. There is no evidence. There is no evidence of wrongdoing. I'm going to carry it's around totally the... It's businessmen keep paying vast sums of money to Biden family. They could have paid them for any old reason, you know. Well, I'm really? going to carry this column around in my wallet. And say, I, I, you know, David Ignatius pointed out he shouldn't have taken the phone call for his son. 
I mean, it that is it. It's in the Washington Post by David Ignatius. MSNBC, be quiet. Oh. They just talked about the weather. It was perfectly normal for him to be talking with Chinese businessmen. And, and, and by the way, it is entirely conceivable that Hunter Biden was selling uh, a greater sense of influence than he actually had. That in the end, but still, here's the thing. If you're a typical businessman in America, you can't get Joe Biden on the phone, right? right? You know, we all know that if you write a giant check to Hunter Biden, all of a sudden you can. I have one more question for you. You're a New Yorker. The mayor of New York is upset that the sanctuary city policy has backfired, as is all of Massachusetts. Uh, do you think Greg Abbott did an inspired thing by distributing the cost across the country of the Biden failed border policy? Successful use of policy to make an argument about the, you know, a national issue that Republicans have done in the last five, 10 years. You know, basically every Democrat on the East Coast is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I liked all the sowing, but all of a sudden now I'm reaping. How, how was I supposed to know this was going to lead to this? You know, wait a minute. All I wanted to do, like, like I, semi-seriously, I wrote a column about this saying that, like, the Democratic argument on the issue of illegal immigration was invoking the Emma Lazarus poem. Now, it's a lovely poem, but it's not a statement of policy. Every country in the world has an immigration policy. Every country in the world tries to secure its borders. It's like, no, 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 give us your tired, your poor. We're a, welcome, we're a country of immigrants. If you even want to restrict the number of immigrants coming in, you're xenophobic, you're racist, you're bad. And the moment shows up the doorstep, hey, New York City's full, New Jersey's full, we can't take anymore. Your mom your hometown, mail, fellas. Your hometown, they're going to put them over at Jet Stadium pretty soon. They got one locker that's free. Jim Garrity, follow at the wonderful National Review, at the extraordinary best-in-class National Review. Go read them there and read them at the Washington Post. Follow them on X at Jim Garrity. Follow me in the next segment, America on YouTube. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.